tonight we are in chapter 7. And tonight what we'll see is that yet again, prayer is on center stage of our text. As we've seen, prayer is a central theme in the Sermon on the Mount. These three chapters, in these short three chapters, we see the idea, the concept of prayer come up over and over again. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter uh, five, or chapter six rather, two ways in which we are to avoid praying. We avoid praying like the Gentiles. We are to avoid praying like the religious leaders, right? The Gentiles, they have the habit of praying with with many words because they think that by their many words they will be heard by God. The religious leaders, they have the idea that um, they're praying in order to be seen by others, right? It's religious hypocrisy that's driving their prayers. And then a couple of weeks ago, we went through the Lord's Prayer. And if you remember, we pointed this out, the Lord's Prayer is at the middle of the middle of the middle section in the Sermon on the Mount. So many people, as they're looking at the Sermon on the Mount on a large scale, they point out that the very epicenter of the the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. If there's one main thrust in the Sermon on the Mount, if there's one pinnacle of this message, it is likely the Lord's Prayer. Well, here tonight, yet again, we are entering into another section which engages the concept of prayer. As I said, Prayer is central to the Sermon on the Mount, which should not surprise us because prayer was not only central to Jesus' teaching, it was central in his life. Think back over, uh, you know, through your memory of Jesus' life. He starts out his ministry by spending 40 days in fasting and dedicated prayer. That's how he begins his ministry. Multiple times we have this this picture of Jesus leaving massive crowds in order to go be by himself and pray. Multiple times Jesus is pictured spending all night praying to his father. Remember the famous scene of Jesus walking on water. What led to that moment? Jesus by himself sitting on the mountainside praying to his father as he watched the disciples sail across the sea into the midst of a storm and he walks out to them. So prayer was not only central to Jesus' ministry, it was central to his teaching. A couple more examples of prayer being a central theme of Jesus' life. Remember, right before Jesus was uh, arrested, We have this scene in John 17 where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And there, the the title of that chapter that many people give it is the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus' long prayer right before he is arrested. And then a couple hours later, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what happens while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? He is praying with such passion and he is praying with such intensity that he is literally sweating blood. Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, breathing his very last breaths, we find Jesus quoting a psalm in prayer. You see, Jesus made sure that prayer was central to both his teaching and his ministry. 
He lived a life of, of consistent and constant and steady prayer, and he teaches us to do the same. So with that said, let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, turn there with me. We're going to be in verse 7. We're going to go through verses 7 through 11. Here's what we read. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, I hope that you can sense the goodness and the kindness of Christ in speaking these words, right? These are some of the most encouraging words in the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I really think these are some of the most encouraging words in the New Testament. Simply put, Jesus is calling us to pray and then he is giving us confidence to do so, telling us and encouraging us that when we pray, our Father will hear us And in his kindness, he will answer us. So with that said, I'm sure that as you even feel the encouragement from this passage, you probably also simultaneously sense a number of questions coming to mind. How in the world could Jesus say this? What does he mean? Can I simply ask for anything? Is Jesus making an unqualified promise here? All I need to do is make my desires known to God no matter what they may be and he is going to give me exactly what I asked for? Well, like we did last week, uh, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 7, here again what we're going to do is spend some time looking at what Jesus did not mean in this verse, before we look at what Jesus did mean. I think that will be helpful for us yet again this week to spend some time evaluating what Jesus did not mean here in these verses. So, the question that we're trying to evaluate is whether Jesus is granting us a promise stating that we can ask for absolutely anything and then receive it. Is that what he means here? That's really at the heart of the debate. Is Jesus' promise meant to be qualified? When he says anything, does he actually mean anything in an absolute sense? If we are to understand what Jesus does not mean, then that's going to help us to understand what Jesus does mean. So let me be clear. Let me just show you my cards. Jesus does not actually give us an unqualified promise here to pray anything our hearts desire and then have a guarantee that we're going to get it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And yet, that is the message that so many people preach from this passage. You'll hear it in the prosperity gospel movement. You'll hear it from the word of faith teachers. They'll, they'll take a comforting wor- verse like this and then manipulate it and twist it in order to make it sound as though you can get 
whatever you want from God. You can treat him like a genie. You can manipulate him for your own means. That's what they'll say. God wants you to have your best life and he wants you to have it right now. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be rich right now in this life. He wants you to have a successful job. And then the message goes one step further. And, and you, you hear from these preachers that God does not only want you to have these things, God guarantees that you can have them. It's yours. The health is yours. The, the rich life is yours. All you need is faith. All you need is faith. So notice the message here. God wants you to have these things. He guarantees them to you. The way you gain access to these things is through believing. Believe in Jesus and you can have whatever your heart desires. You can have the Ferrari. You can have the yacht. You can have the $200,000 raise. Right? You can have health. You can have wellness. You can ask for the home. But here's where the message gets even more warped and destructive because the message does not stop there from the prosperity message, the, the prosperity gospel teachers. They will go further and say, here's how you show your faith. Sow a seed into my ministry. Pay into my ministry. You want to show your faith? Show your faith financially by investing into this ministry. So that's the message. You want God to bless you? Everyone says, yes, of course I want God to bless me. Have faith in God. You want to show that you have faith? Give to my ministry. If you invest in this ministry, God is going to pour out your, or his blessings on you. That's essentially the message. And you'll hear that from so many people, right? The motivation, though, the motivation is, is greed. It's personal gain. It's, it's mutilating the sheep for the sake of personal benefit. And that's why that message is so disgusting. That's why it's so harmful. That's why it is so damnable to preach. And so, what we need to ask then is this. How do we know that is not what Jesus means here? If we're saying Jesus does not mean ask for anything in the world and you can get it, how do we know that? It seems as though that's what Jesus is saying. So that's where we need to, to stop and, and ask another question. How can we prove that the prosperity gospel has this passage wrong? Well, there are countless ways to prove that the prosperity gospel has this passage wrong. But I want to focus on two clear arguments in order to show this. First, Multiple times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus engage in hyperbolic statements. And we need to understand his statements as hyperbole if we want to understand what he is actually saying. Remember, hyperbole is its intentional overstatement in order to prove a point. So you overstate your point in order to make your point all the clearer. So for example, remember in chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus tells us to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes if our eyes or our hands cause us to stumble. Like clearly, that's hyperbole. Another example from chapter 5 in verses 38 through 41, Christian taught, taught us on, on this passage. It says, if anyone asks you for anything, give it to them. So let me get this straight, right? 
alcoholic comes to you, asks for a beer. Jesus says, I need to give a beer to this guy. Is that? No, clearly Jesus again is using hyperbole. Last week we saw in chapter seven, verse one, Jesus says, do not judge, period. And you're like, oh, wow. So never, I can't make any sort of critical remark at all towards anyone, even a fellow brother or sister in Christ. No, again, clearly Jesus is using hyperbole and it's proven in that very passage when he says, when you do point out something to your brother, take the log out of your own eye before you point out the dust in their eye. Clearly Jesus uses hyperbole over and over again throughout the course of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we need to read the sermon with wisdom. We need to read Jesus's words in light of the larger message. The same thing is going on here. Jesus is using hyperbole yet again to prove his point that God will care for us. Now there's a second way in which we can demonstrate that the prosperity gospel teachers, they have this this verse wrong. And this is just a, a simple lesson that we need to look at the larger message of scripture whenever we're interpreting a single passage. We need to look at the context of the whole Bible. We need to look at the the context of everything Jesus says. We need to look at the context of the rest of the New Testament. I think it's actually helpful for us to look at the book of James. So turn with me to James. uh, James 1, verses 5 to 8. It's, It's interesting. As we read this, notice that James is actually pulling from Jesus, it seems. And actually that happens multiple times. James, throughout his epistle, is constantly pulling from Jesus. Here we have an example of that. So verse five in chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in his ways, right? It seems as though James here is quoting Jesus. Ask anything, ask in faith, God will give it to you. But fast forward to chapter four in the book of James. So turn a couple pages chapter 4. I want to begin in in verse 2, the end of verse 2. Here he's talking about coveting. He's saying, you covet. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. So the reason you're coveting is because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Sounds similar to what he just said in chapter 1. But then notice what he says in verse 3. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So notice in chapter four, James qualifies what he said in chapter one. In chapter one, it seems as though he's making this broad promise Ask for anything and it will be given to you. And then in chapter four, he says, hey, you know why sometimes you don't receive something? It's because you're asking for your own desires. You're asking for your own passions. In other words, James is telling us that God won't give us everything we ask, especially when we're asking him for worldly things. 
come back to Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, we got to read this in light of what Jesus just taught us in chapter 6. Remember, Jesus just taught us on the idea of wealth in chapter 6. Remember what Jesus said. He said, if you love money, and if you love the things of this world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. You cannot serve both God and money. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you love the other, be devoted to one and, and hate the other. In reality, Jesus and James are saying the same exact thing. Yes, ask me for anything, but if you're going to start asking for worldly things, that doesn't show that you are my disciple. That shows that you are my enemy. That is a pretty damning idea for many who claim to be preachers of the gospel. In reality, both say that when you bring certain requests to God, you are actually demonstrating that you are worldly. And that is so contradictory to the prosperity preachers. They say, ask God for the things of this world. Just ask in faith and he'll give you everything you want. Right? Jesus and James say that some prayer requests are not answered, and in fact, all they do is show that you are worldly, that you are a a child of this world, not a child of God. And James went so far as to say that if you are a child of this world, you are actually at enmity with God. You're making yourself God's enemy. So Jesus clearly is not teaching a prosperity gospel here. Jesus is using hyperbole, and then when we look at Jesus in the larger context, we see clearly he does not mean that we are to come to God with worldly desires, asking for him, and then have some sort of guarantee that those things are ours just because we ask for them. So that's a glimpse into what this passage does not mean. But with that, we're left with the question, okay, then how do we put this verse into practice? How do we actually apply this verse? What what does this promise actually refer to? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Jesus is telling us that we should, in fact, make our requests known to God. Jesus is telling us that we ought to call upon God in faith. He's teaching us that we need to place our trust in God for everything that we need. He's saying pray for daily needs. Pray for the ability to pay bills. Pray for the job. Pray for evangelism opportunities. Pray in the midst of your suffering. Pray when you feel heartache. Pray as we discussed earlier with Christian, when Christian was praying through Ezekiel. Pray when you, when you feel distant from God. Ask him and he will, he will enter you through his spirit and give you the ability to draw near to him. All you have to do is ask. Christ is encouraging us to pray. But notice, he's not only asking for us to pray, he's asking for us to plead with God for the things that we need. Look at his words. He says, ask, seek, knock. Notice the repetition here. Jesus is calling us to be beggars who plead with God. I mean, that's the main message of this passage here. Beg from God who freely and graciously gives to lowly beggars. That's the message of of Matthew 7 here. 
You have this story in Luke 18 of the persistent widow. Maybe you remember this. Let, let me just read this parable. It's from Luke 18, verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, <clears throat> there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she'll stop beating down my door continually. And the Lord said, hear what this unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So even though we know that these passages are not promising some sort of health, wealth, and prosperity, sort of an idea, we need to be careful not to swing the pendulum too far to the other side. This may not be an unqualified promise to anything our hearts desire. However, this is a promise from God that he will give us what we need and that we ought to come to him in constant intercession. We are to plead with God for what we need and then find that he will provide answers for us. He knows what we need and he will care for us. We can trust our father. As Jesus says, the earthly fathers, who he again uses hyperbole, he says, you guys are evil. And yet if you're a father of your son and he comes to you and asks for bread, you're not gonna give him a stone, right? Then he says, if he comes to you and and asks for a fish, you're not gonna give him a serpent. How much more is God willing to give you what you need when you come and ask him for what you need? So let's go a little bit deeper. What if God doesn't answer our prayers? What if God doesn't answer us when we come to him with our requests? We come to him what we are with our needs. What happens then? Here's the, here's the reality. is That question is flawed. The question is flawed. God does answer prayer. He always answers prayer. The truth is, we have to leave room for the fact that sometimes God just answers us with a no. When we come to him asking for things, sometimes his answer is no. And this is where we need to stop and trust the sovereign hand of God. When we do not see our prayer requests answered in the way that we want them to be answered, we can still trust God's sovereign hand. Because as scripture says over and over and over again, he does care for us. And this is key. We need to know that God knows what we need better than we know what we need. And sometimes what we need is for him to say no. That shouldn't surprise us. I remember one time when I was still in schooling, And I got word that the church I grew up in was hiring, um, they were hiring, they they wanted to bring on a new pastor. I talked to uh, the pastor at the church, this is the the guy I 
I grew up, he, he mentored me when I was a kid. Um, I was excited for this position. I prayed for this position. I asked God that he would make this happen, and I didn't get the job, right? Just didn't get it. Did God answer that prayer request, though? I think, yes, I think he did. He just told me no, <laughs> right? Here's the thing. With that specific situation, I ended up seeing that God's no answer was a good thing. I got to see that, that God was actually working in my favor by telling me no. Because I, I didn't quite have the, the clarity to realize that I did not line up with that church. Like, we just didn't agree on a number of different things. And it was going to be a bad situation for me, and it was going to be a bad situation for that church if I ended up in that church. And so me not getting that position was actually God's kindness to me and that church. I probably would have gotten there, and after the honeymoon stage ended, I would have been angry, bitter, and mad that I I left school to go and take this position. And then I would have caused damage, right? But in reality, I had the benefit, I have the benefit now, of seeing that God's no answer to that prayer request was actually a good thing. Think of Joseph. He's in prison. Then he's in prison again. (laughs) And then, you know, he's in slavery. And he's just praying to God, why? Why is this happening? I want to be back with my family in Israel. Just imagine that. For years and years and years, he he was abandoned by his brothers. He's left in prison. And he's just praying that God would remove remove him from this situation and then at the very end of Joseph's life he finally sees that God was actually working in all of the details God was telling Joseph no I'm not going to let you out of prison now no I'm not going to let you go back to Israel now no I'm not going to release you from slavery now because I have a plan for you and at the very end of Joseph's life he says to his brothers who sold him into slavery originally he looks at his brothers and he says well you intended for evil God intended for good So Joseph, in that moment, saw that God's no answer was actually a good thing. We can't miss the fact that sometimes God says no, and it's actually for our good. And yet we we can't be blind to the reality that sometimes God tells us no, and we never understand why he said no to that prayer request. We never realize. We never come to understand why he told us no. That happens too. Sometimes we don't have the Joseph epiphany moment where you see, oh my gosh, God was working in all of this. God was working in the slavery. God was working in my imprisonment. Sometimes that never happens. And yet, in those situations, we still need to have the faith to trust that God is good God is is sovereign. He cares for me. Here's the reality. The reason we often don't understand why God tells us no is because our viewpoint is limited, right? We can't see beyond our current circumstances. We can't see beyond our situations. And sometimes we die in those circumstances and we die in those situations without ever being able to see beyond them to what God's greater purpose was. Sometimes we don't understand why God would tell us no because our perspective is bound and twisted and warped by sinful desires within our hearts. 
So God tells us, no, we don't understand why he said no. But if, if that sin wasn't just leaking through your heart, you might be able to see clearly and understand why God told you no in that moment. Sometimes God tells us no and it is for our good. And sometimes he is giving us a gift by saying no. He's like a good father who gives gifts to his child. I mean, think of it. If I gave Theo everything he asked for, he would not be a good kid. (laughs) In fact, I'd probably ruin him. (laughs) Similarly, God understands that if he told us yes to every prayer request we brought before him, our lives would be ruined. (laughs) We'd be left in horrible situations because sometimes the things we desire and the things we crave are not best for us. God knows better than we do. God is not bound by time. He's not bound by any situation. He's not bound by a lack of understanding. He's not bound by his finitude. He's not bound by his inability to see 10 years in the future. God is not bound by sin. He's not bound by a lustful heart. He's not bound by his own selfish cravings. He knows all things. He's pure and he's holy. And so he is not bound by the things we are bound by. And so when he tells us, no, it may be for our good even when we don't realize it. You see, God is in the heavens and he is able to do whatever he pleases uh, pleases to do. And that means he can turn situations that seem to be warped and twisted in our lives and he can turn them out for the good. Right? That's the message of the gospel, is it not? the most heinous moment in all of history, God turns it out for the good. God is at work in the most dire of circumstances, even when the ruler of heaven is hung on a cross by those people who were supposed to be in his dominion. God sovereignly working and making sure his plan is accomplished. Even when the creator is being destroyed by his creation, God is still having his will accomplished. Even when the author of life is is being placed into a tomb among the dead, God is still enabling his purposes to succeed. His plans are not thwarted. Why? Because God was using suffering. He was using Jesus' death. He was was using this situation where Christ was, was buried in order to bring about our reconciliation to God. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we are now reconciled to God. God knows what we need better than we know. And sometimes God's desire is to put us in a difficult circumstance in order for our good. He knows when to give us a yes. He knows when to give us a no I mean, what this passage really boils down to is the fact that we are being commanded to beg from God for everything we need. And in his kindness, he will give to lowly beggars everything that they need for life and for godliness. And so God is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our utter dependence. He is, he is able to care for us. He is capable of tending to us as sheep of his fold. I mean, think about it. He has, he has provided for our greatest need. 
He has provided for our greatest need. And so we have all the confidence of the world to come to him with our daily needs. Think about it. He's proven his ability. Think about the ways in which he has provided for our greatest need. What was your greatest need? And how did God accomplish it? How did God bring to you the the answer to your greatest need? Your greatest need was not food and clothing. Your greatest need was not rescue from your depression or rescue from a, a bad relationship. Your greatest need was not getting into college or graduating from college. Your greatest need is not getting a job. It's not getting a wife. It's not getting a husband. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And God has, has made a way for us to, to enter into his presence, right? We need to be made worthy of a relationship with God. That's what we need. We need to be able to stand before God and not be condemned. That's what we need. But we're rebels. We are rebels rebelling against God. And because of that, that's why we need to be reconciled. That's why we need to be made worthy of having a relationship with our Father in heaven. That's why we need the ability to be made free from our condemnation. That was our greatest need. Reconciliation to God. And he provided that. And notice how he provided for us in that. He has reconciled us to himself. He has made us worthy of this relationship. He, he has made us righteous and he's freed us from our condemn, condemnation and he did that through the costliest of means. He sent Christ to die on our behalf. He sent his son to earth to pay for our condemnation through death. Jesus was judged. He, he received the judgment that you and I deserved. He sent his son to reconcile us, rebels, to the Father. And he did so through his death and resurrection. And so, can we trust him with our daily needs? Of course. Of course, if he's willing to sacrifice his own life in order to grant us what we actually need, of course we can trust him with our daily needs. Of course we can trust him with clothing, with food, with the job, with the daily provisions. We can trust him even when he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. It's because he's trustworthy and he's proven himself to be trustworthy. So now before um, my voice gives way, I, I want to spend uh, the end of our night contemplating a couple of the benefits there are related to pleading with God. Like, what benefit is there in pleading with God? What benefit is there to asking and seeking and knocking? Even when God doesn't answer with a yes, like, why pray then? If he's not even going to answer all my prayer requests, then why do I pray to him? If he's not going to say yes to everything I I bring to him, then, then why pray? Well, there are benefits. First off, praying to God in all circumstances enhances our humility. The more you plead with God, the more you seek after God in prayer, the more you will remind yourself that you are not the answer to your problems. The more you plead with God, the more you will recognize that you are not capable of providing for all of your needs. The more you turn your attention off of yourself and on to God, the more you will put your pride to death. 
every single time you look outside yourself for answers, you're actually crippling your pride. Prayer has a benefit of crippling your pride. You see, in our arrogance, we tell ourselves that we are the answer to all of our problems. We tell ourselves that we are capable of of accomplishing anything we want in and of ourselves. We tell ourselves that, that we are able to take care of any situation, no matter what it is, without anyone's help. And so the daily, regular reminder that comes about just by looking to God and making your requests known to God, that will humble you. That will help you to put your pride to death. A second benefit of constantly seeking God and and making your requests known to Him, it's similar to humility, but it's, it's the art of learning dependence on God. When you come to God and when you beg from God, you are, you are showing your dependence on him for all things. And we need to learn the message of dependency because dependency is at the heart of the gospel. Right? What is the message of, of the gospel? Depend on Christ and not yourself. If you show up at God's foot, at the foot of his throne room, and, and you tell him, why am I here? Because of what I have done. If you're depending on yourself, you will have no place in God's presence. The message of the gospel is I need to depend, not on myself, but on Christ. And so every time we're praying to God and asking him for, for everything we need, he's making us more and more dependent, trusting less and less in ourselves. Third and finally, praying to God serves to build our faith. And this is probably the most obvious, the most obvious benefit for praying. When we pray, we are able to grow in our ability to trust God. When you are praying and pleading with God for weeks, months, years, and you finally see God answer your prayer, that gives you the ability to grow in your faith. Even when God says no, and you get one of those opportunities where you have the aha moment and see God said no, and it was for a good reason, that too will benefit your faith. Even the no is capable of building our faith. And we all know that the greater our faith is, the greater our our love for Christ will be. Because the greater your faith is, the more you you begin to recognize how how real and substantive and true God actually is. And the more you begin to understand how true he is and, and how real he is and how intimate he is, the more you will grow in your love for him. So we need to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our faith. And, and one means of doing that is by praying and constantly looking out for the ways in which God is answering those prayers. So there's much more we could say about the benefits of prayer, but, but for now, um, I hope that is sufficient. So let me pray as we close. God, I, I do thank you for um, answering my prayers today to give me strength and to give my voice strength for this evening. Lord, even though that's small, we see that you are answering prayers uh, even as simple as that. Lord, we're grateful for the ways in which you have spoken to us in your word. 
And we pray that as we leave here, we would be more confident and more passionate as we pray to you, trusting you and believing that you are capable of doing all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.